we thank you for how you have given us life. You have given us new life. And it's by your grace. It's not because of our goodness. It's because of your goodness. Because you are the giver. And we thank you, Father, that you give us the opportunity to acknowledge your wardship in our lives as we come to you with these tithes and these offerings. And as we pray week by week that you would use these for your glory and for uh, raising up brand new worshipers of Jesus and for your kingdom. We've just heard testimony of part of the way that you've done that uh, on, on the, the fronts with, with people, women and men who are coming into uh, the Kime Clinics in crisis and are being ministered to, Father. We thank you for that. We pray that you would multiply that. Use this all for more of your kingdom glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Y'all can have a seat. <clears throat> As Ezra mentioned, you'll see a table, you can't miss it, out here uh, that's got baby bottles on it. And this is just part of a uh, fundraising that we do each year to help out CPC. So if you'd like to uh, grab a baby bottle and take it with you and have your kids fill it up with change, if you got to work hard to find change. But if you uh, fill that with change, that'd be great. Or it doesn't have to be change. It could be paper. So. Um, but speaking, speaking of uh, the financial statements for 2022, if you gave are on the back table. Uh, I do want to, I mentioned this last week, we were in transition, as a lot of y'all remember, to a new giving platform this last year, and so uh, you will probably get multiple pages of uh, of receipts because from the from the different platforms. Uh, if if you have questions, feel free to ask uh, one of our deacons. But we thank you. There's a lot of a lot of labor uh, that went in this year, so you'll see a box of envelopes on the table. So if you want to grab yours, they've got about. They might have four sheets of paper in them, so it helps us not to have to mail them if we can. Uh, but we'll, uh, if you could grab those and take them home with you. I also want to mention that uh, our English is a second language ministry. Every year, we, we can't, every week, we constantly have new people coming in. And what we find is we've got level one that actually Jeff and Becky Brout teach. Uh, and by the time we get to January, the new students who are coming in are way behind the students who came in in September. And so we usually start a, a 1A class uh, for those folks. We have, at this point, have five students, a couple from uh, Belarus and from, uh, uh, those of y'all who know, Roher Orozco, his nephew is up, just moved up here from uh, Nicaragua, and a couple other folks. We could use some uh, volunteers to help with that. So if you would be, it's on Tuesday nights from seven to nine, it's just a, great, neat ministry. We actually have a couple folks in our inquirers class uh, this year who are kind of products of our, our uh, free English classes, and so we're thankful to minister to uh, folks who are in our midst. We've been praying for decades for God to reach the nations, and now he's bringing them into our neighborhoods, and we're, we're very thankful for that, and it's blessed to be able to worship God together with them. We're in Genesis 1 this morning. A lot of y'all know we, we've been in, doing a series in the Gospel of John, and we broke for Christmas, but in order to kind of come in for a landing and have the resurrection on Easter Sunday, we're not going to start back up again until mid-February. So we've got a, a couple weeks in here, and we're going to talk about the, the doctrine called the Imago Dei, the image of God as he created us. And 
today we're particularly going to look at what that means with regard to sanctity of life. And then the next two weeks after that, we'll be talking about how, how the Imago Dei impacts marriage. Um, as both Jeff and Ezra mentioned, uh, today is the 50th, today specifically, is the 50th anniversary of uh, Roe v. Wade. I kept thinking, boy, it's got to be really close, and I finally just Googled. I mean, I've always had the date imprinted on my brain, and sure enough, I thought it was too good to be true that it's actually today, Sunday. That was a 5-4 vote, so it's not like it was unanimous, but it nonetheless set the course for, for 50 years. Um, abortion is one issue. Uh, that falls under the idea of sanctity of life. And what I want you to see this morning is that the Christian basis for declaring the sanctity of life comes from this, what we call the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the, the image of God that is put on human beings, uh, that God put there. And therefore, every single created human being has value. Uh, we're we're going to talk about some other issues as well at the end. Uh, but because sanctity of life has a broad application. But the first, what I want to tell you first before we move into it is that we believe these are theological issues, not political issues. Okay, these don't come because of a political plat platform. We start where, where God starts and let that issue forth into uh, what we believe. So let me read to you from Genesis chapter 1. We'll read verses 26 and 27. Hear the word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us understand and, and apply this. But Lord, thank you that you communicated to Moses and through Moses to write down what you did and specifically what you said as you brought about the creation, our own world. And Father, we, we pray that you would give us understanding, your spirit by which you created through your word, that that spirit would work in us, give us hearing ears uh, and, and hearts that, that receive it and that help us to think through to, to process the implications of what this means. And we ask it, Lord, in, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in, in those verses, God explains the, his creation of, of humankind. Uh, he, when he says man, he says he created them, male and female. So this was about all, all humankind. And the, the first thing I want to look at with you this morning is that the image of God is the foundation for the sanctity of life. That God stated his intent that he was going to make mankind in his image uniquely, and then he accomplished that intent. And it was unique because all the other, all the other animals and birds, the fish in the sea, the land animals, the plants, 
Every one of those, God made them and, and said they would be fruitful and bear fruit after their own kind. But he didn't say that here. The, the application of the imago dei is that the Bible suggests that the imago dei affects the human rights because God made mankind in his image. All the other plants and animals were according to their kind. Only man is not listed as according to that kind. It's, it's according to God's kind. God put his image on that. And it's interesting, therefore, because every single human being is made in the image of God, there's value because it represents who God is, what you do to any human being, whether they believe in God, love God, hate God, or not. They are made in his image and, and need to be treated with, with value. But not only are all people made in God's image, it's interesting, Genesis 10, later on in the book, when it gives what's called the table of nations, it, it's teaching that every single nation and every single, therefore, ethnic group, etc., even with all the linguistic diversity and the cultural diversity, they come from the same human family. So in, literally in God's book, there's one race. It's the human race. And we are, we are all connected. And so there's, not, there's one kind of human being, the kind that's, that's made in God's image. And so because the Imago Dei, the image of God, was at the very beginning before there were any ethnic divisions or racial divisions or national divisions, any form of you know, ethnocentrism or racial centrism or um, gender superiority is, needs to be called into question because the first thing is that we are all equal before God uh, with one another. And so you could phrase this as the right of all people to be treated justly and fairly. And so that's what it, it's, it's based on what, what God has done. And the, the intrusion of sin as it breaks into God's good creation, it does not obliterate the image of God. You all have heard me use this example many times. If you, you, know, if you take a penny, on the penny you have the image of Abraham Lincoln. You put the penny on a railroad track and it gets run over by a train. You come back, the penny, it's still got the image of Abraham Lincoln. It's just not quite as clear, right? It's more, it's more marred. Well, in the same way, that's what the, the fall and what sin did it, humanity is that the image of God is still there. It's more marred. Sometimes it's a little harder to see, but every single human being was still made in the image of God. In fact, after the fall in Genesis 5, we read, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And this image and likeness is passed on to future generations. So it, it, right after the, the Adam was created, it says in verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. So if Adam was made in God's image, and then he fathered a son, Seth, who was in his image and his likeness, what's that telling you? He also was made in the image of God. And after the flood in Genesis 9, 
after they've come through and they get off the ark and God speaks to Adam or to Noah and he tells Noah again he declares that they're in God's image and they're to be fruitful and multiply and show off who God is that the 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 imago dei in fact he he tells Noah that because God man is made in God's image that's why murder should be punished by capital punishment because it's the equivalent of killing God to murder another human being. And so the, the Bible doesn't explicitly address the modern notion of human rights. There's a lot of modern notions, but, but it provides the basis theologically. It tells us what, what God thinks about the importance of, of human rights, of every person having value. So in the big picture, this idea of the image of God, it teaches us about the sanctity of life. Now, I know this morning there's at least four distinct groups here. There, there are those who profoundly believe that abortion is wrong morally. And I hope what we look at this morning will, will be an encouragement and a challenge to you. There are others who are basically undecided about abortion. And I hope I can help you maybe make up your mind. Uh, at least from this vantage point. There are others who may be here who are pro-choice. And we're glad to have you here. And I hope you'll just simply, you know, listen to what we're going to say. And if you still don't agree with me when I'm finished, uh, I'm not going to be angry at you. We just want you to be able, just want a free hearing of, of what, wh- why we believe what God has to say is what shapes how, how we think. Because, you know, the word politics comes from the root of policy. It's really just about making policies, what's behind it. But we don't start with our policies. We start with, with our worldview. We start with what, what is it that, as, as, a, as a Christian, I need to start with what does God say, and that shapes the kind of policies. How, how, do, how do I apply what God says? I might like it. I might not like it. I, mean, there, I, know, I know there's going to be some people, somebody's going to be, everybody, well, all of us are going to have our toes stepped on today. Uh, by some of the things that I, as I've wrestled through with this, uh, it's pushed me in areas where I felt uncomfortable, but, but it's what God's saying. And so we have to all be, be ready to receive that. And the fourth group, there, there, there's almost certainly you know, some women here who've had an abortion. And I want you to know um, I'm most concerned for you because you know the truth of, of what's involved there. And I want you to know that we love you and we're glad that you're here and we'll never do anything to hurt you or embarrass you. Um, our deepest prayer is that you'll experience God's grace and, and God's forgiveness. And we're not here to condemn you. Okay, so I, I want to promise that. The critical question I want to look at in this part, though, is what, what, does, what does the Bible say about pr- abortion? And the answer to that is, in one sense, is pretty simple. The Bible doesn't specifically say anything about abortion, per se. Um, you're not going to find a biblical writer directly discussing the issue. You know, Jesus never talked about it. Why? Because it wasn't important? Or because it wasn't wrong? No. The, the reason Jesus doesn't talk about abortion is it wasn't practiced in Israel. It was practiced during that day. It was always a pagan practice. And it was something that happened in Greece. 
in Rome, in many of the other cultures. It happened when, when Israel came to the land of Canaan. Child sacrifice was a routine, regular event. And unfortunately, in the early days of Israel, there were many of the Israelites who fell into being just like the culture around them, and they did sacrifice their children. We read about some of the kings who were sacrificing their children. We read the prophets calling out the people of Israel for being just like the pagan people and sacrificing their children. But by the time of Jesus, the Jews, because of God's laws to them, did not kill the unborn. So there wasn't a reason to address it, so Jesus didn't speak to it. But that doesn't mean the Bible's silent on the issue. In fact, it actually has a lot to say about the value of unborn human life. So, for example, in Psalm 139, it says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained from me, for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I mean, that is the strongest statement of God's prenatal care in the Bible. How much does God say that he knows about the baby growing in the womb? Everything. It says like a, like a skillful weaver. God takes the tiny hands and, and legs and he joins them to the, to the body. He forms the heart and then God sets the heart beating. He watches over the thumb and makes sure it makes its way into the mouth. That, that God, you know, who makes babies? God makes babies. All of you who are parents, you know, you know you're always struck by the miracle of childbirth, right? It just takes your breath away. I mean, so many young guys I've talked to, first-time fathers, and it just always knocked for a loop with the wonder of what's just occurred. And it's amazing how often that can even you know, move young men, men to pursue and consider God because they hadn't thought about it before because they realized God has made this baby. Likewise, in Jeremiah, as he tells the story about his calling to the ministry, he says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Because you were born, I, before you were born, I set you apart. See, God, God knew Jeremiah even before he was formed. So he was, you know, at, at one day old, long before his mother knew that he was even conceived, God already knew him. So he had that value. And so when we, when we see the unborn, it, it's designed to move us to worship God, for they are his creation. That's, that's where they have, have come from, and that's part of the beauty. And so we, it, it really calls us to just proceed with a, with a holy caution with regard to unborn life and, and respect for life. God is everywhere in the womb, and his fingerprints are, are everywhere. When you touch an unborn child, you're touching the handiwork of God. We just got out of Christmas, and we, we read together in Luke 1. When Elizabeth, remember, we talked about Mary, the angel 
Gabriel came to Mary and told her that she was going to become pregnant with the Holy Spirit. And he said, if you want to know, if you want proof of that, your cousin, your relative Elizabeth, she has become pregnant. And Elizabeth was kind of like Abraham's wife, Sarah. She was way old and beyond childbearing years. And so Elizabeth got up and skedaddled up to the mountains of Judah to verify this because she couldn't believe that she herself was going to become pregnant because she knew she hadn't been with Joseph yet. And so she gets up there, and here's what happened. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that is John, who had become the baptizer, John leaped in her womb. A couple verses later, Elizabeth says, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So you have these two expectant mothers. Elizabeth doesn't know anything about Mary, and Mary's not showing. This is you know, within a week or two of when she had been impregnated. And yet Elizabeth's baby, the yet-to-be-born John the baptizer, leaped in the womb. And what's interesting is the, the Greek word for the baby in my womb is brephos, which is always used to describe an infant, a born child. So it, the, the, it which just shows the, the biblical understanding is that the unborn child was considered a baby. A child. They didn't use a, another word to call it something else. No. At 21 days after conception, an irregular heartbeat shows up before the mother even necessarily knows she's pregnant. At 45 days, EEG waves can be picked up from the baby's brain. In the ninth and 10th weeks, the thyroid glands and the adrenal glands are functioning, and the baby can squint and swallow and move his tongue, and the sex hormones are present. By the 12th and 13th week, they have fingernails, the thumbprints are formed. The baby has a separate identity from the mother. And all that's within the first, tri the first trimester. The baby is an individual. The baby is not part of the mother's body. It's just attached to it. There was a doctor I read who spoke about, he asked a doctor, a friend of his, who was uh, doing abortions, if he could be present while that happened. And as he observed, when the, when the needle was inserted with the chemicals to kill the baby, he, he saw the baby inside just reacting, fighting for life. And he said his whole view, what he thought, and this guy, this guy had been through medical school, he was already a doctor. But he just didn't understand what really happened, and he saw it happen. And his whole view of abortion changed. Bernard Nathanson was one of the founders of NARAL, which was the, the National Abortion Rights Action League that was the initial organization back in the 70s that got Roe v. Wade passed. He was a founding member. And he, he left. He left that group after he saw a sonogram because he realized... It was really a baby. Remember, Ezra said that part of what that decision was declaring was that the child inside was, was not a baby. It was not an infant. This guy's one of the ones who, brought, who, who, who worked and campaigned to get that passed, and he realized he was wrong. All humans are made in the image of God. If you take that 60 million abortions that Ezra mentioned uh, in the last 50 years, and you compare the total American casualties in all of the wars that we fought, 
the Revolution, the War of 1812, Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War. It's just over two and a half million. Two and a half. So there's been 24 times, 24 abortions for every wartime casualty. You think about how many people that's, that's removed uh, from, our, from our country. And, and there's a lot of victims from abortion. Obviously the children, but also the, many of the mothers, some of whom have physical repercussions. Some just battle with emotional grief or, or guilt or sorrow. Uh, some psychological, some hardening of heart. 50% of abortions are repeat abortions. And so it's, it's hard to reach those women. And so, some of the victims are those who work in clinics that perform them. That clinics are generally open in poorer areas, and a lot of times the employees may feel trapped in their job. They have to do it. They feel like they have to do it. One of the neat things about the Kime Centers is that they, they provide free sonograms uh, for the mothers and fathers to be able to see the baby. It used to be, unfortunately a couple of years ago, the, the law changed in Virginia. It used to be sonograms were re required uh, before an abortion. And uh, Planned Parenthood charges a couple hundred dollars for that. And they wouldn't show the picture, they wouldn't show the sonogram to the parents because they know what happens. That's one of the neat things at the Kime Center, talking to folks who worked there over the years, is when, when the father and or the mother sees the sonogram and they see the baby there, it changes everything. Just like Bernard Nathanson. When you see, oh, this is a life. You, you, you confront reality. Um, but they don't stop with that. If, if the mother is willing, they, they provide free prenatal care. You know, what, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, the problem with people who are, you know, quote, quote, anti-abortion is that they just want to stop the abortions and then they're over with it. That's not the case. There's care offered to these mothers and fathers. Uh, that there's tangible care, concrete care to walk them through, as well as spiritually. You remember we, we had a group from our church, in fact, who, who partnered a couple of years back with, one of the classes of mothers and fathers who would decide to carry their children. And they just, they, they, have, a, they have classes that they take them through, prenatal classes. And we had folks who just came, provided food, and just got to know them and came alongside them. Uh, it's, uh, it's not just the life of the baby that has sanctity. It's also the life of the mother. The life of the mother has sanctity as well, as well as the life of the father. And so they have a closed cop closet and staff that help them partnering with churches like, like Ezra. So as Christians, we, we're not for life and opposed to abortion because the children are precious. We're for life because the children are precious to God. He's the one who cares more than any of us ever will. And so we, we, are, we are compelled to do so because we're speaking up for him. But sanctity of life also affects other issues. The euthanasia, for example. In, in the Netherlands, assisted suicide has been legal for a lot of years, but they've moved way beyond assisted suicide to euthanasia. Um, 
they've, they've moved from euthanasia for terminal illness to euthanasia for chronic illness to euthanasia for mental stress. Um, they've moved from voluntary euthanasia to involuntary euthanasia. They call it the, the termination of a per patient without specific request. And Canada's been doing the same thing. Canada's just done this in a, in a few years. I just encourage you to Google Canada and euthanasia of what's going on there. Just in, in recent weeks, they've, they've removed any restrictions on euthanasia, and they, they've, they're even suggesting offering to euthanize those who are too poor to continue with dignity. Have you ever read the history of the Second World War, the Nazism? That, that's, that's what that was. People who are physically or mentally incapacitated. I mean, that happened in our own state of Virginia back in the beginning of the last century. They sterilized people who had mental illness so it wouldn't pass on. That, that's, it, it's awful. It's tragic. That's the euthanasia that, that we need to guard the sanctity of life because all humans are important. God's the one who determines when he brings us in and when he takes us away. Racism is a sanctity of life issue. You know, Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And his, his niece, Dr. Alveda King, she's pointed out that abortion is the ultimate form of hate, the ultimate assault on his civil rights. She says, as one of God's microphones, I'm often required to say what people don't want to hear. Abortion is racism in that abortion takes away the civil rights and lives of our weakest and most vulnerable members of the human race, unborn babies. And there's another uh, black pro-life advocate, Star Parker, and she said, we can talk all day about Black Lives Matter, but if we exclude abortion from the discussion, we've excluded the fundamentals of it. If black lives matter, then black women matter. If black lives matter, then black children matter. If black lives matter, then black babies matter. Blacks make up 12% of the American population and 38% of the abortions that have occurred in this country. 38%. You know, when Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood, the intention was to target the birth rate of the African Americans in our country. And she, she was what we call a eugenist. But there was a whole crew of people and there still is, who, who, who believed that the unfit people needed to be weeded out of the American society. It was the product of thinking of evolution, the, the survival of the fittest. So they wanted to get rid of the unfit. Even today, 79% of the Planned Parenthood facilities are within walking distance or located within predominantly black or Latino communities. You know, Sanger got her wish. 38% reduction in the, Af in the black population. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 2009, she, she said, at the time Roe was decided, there was concern about population growth. I remember when I was a kid, that was, that was, I was a kid back then. I remember the, the big thing, one of the things, things that I talk about in our social studies classes was population control. That was a big word. And, and, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, and particularly growth in populations we don't want to have too many of. She owned it. She saw it. She called it for what it was. 
Sanctity of life applies to abortion and euthanasia and racism. And also, when Jesus gave the command that we're to love our enemies, it's grounded in the Imago Dei. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, you have heard, love your neighbor. But since in, in Leviticus 19, the neighbor is one of your people, he didn't, it wasn't radical enough, and so Jesus pressed beyond the Old Testament command to love your neighbor, talking about everybody in Israel, and he cut against the, the cultural wisdom of hating your enemies, and he says, you need to care. There's an Old Testament call to care for the, the Hebrew word is jer, which translated as the sojourner. We might call the refugee today that you find all throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Other ancient Near Eastern peoples cared about widows and orphans, but Israel was distinctive because they cared about the welfare of people who are outside their own nation who took refuge among them. They were different than the other nations in that. In Deuteronomy, God links together widows and orphans and aliens or refugees. And so, just as Leviticus 19 said we need to love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19.34 says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm Yahweh, your God. That's why you do it. Jesus said, escalated to say we need to love our neighbors, or we need to love our enemies, not just love our neighbors, not just love the people, but love the people who, who, who just, who are at, who against us, who stand against us, even as he did all the way to the end. But he also, he anchors it in, in what God had said throughout the Old Testament, to, to love the alien as yourself, because that's what Israel themselves had explained. The, Jesus just pushes it further, not just loving your neighbor, not just loving the aliens and the sojourners, but loving our outright enemies. Just like in the Old Testament, God grounded it in who he was and what he did, Jesus does the same thing. He says, "Before God, do it like God who makes his son rise on the evil and the wicked and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He said, Jesus says, so be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. So we do it because God is doing it. So the, the, the practical ethic of the Imago Dei love our enemies you know the, the, the great thing about the command to love your enemies is you can't do it right you 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 need the gospel you say god you're not letting me up the hook on this but i i, I can't i can't do it so you've got to enable me to love this person when i'd rather freeze them out or punch punch them out or chew them out I hope to bless them out in a different kind of way. You know, th th but you want me, you've called me to bless them. You, you, we, we, God reminds us of our dependence and our reliance on him. What does this mean for, like, policy, for example? 
you know, it's complicated when we think about aliens because biblically they didn't have national borders. What they called nations were kind of more like city-states. Uh, and I, I've got to be honest, the more I wrestle with some of the mandates of Scripture, what God was calling Israel to, of being welcoming to all their immigrants, sounds like there, there should be a really healthy, welcoming immigration policy. But on the other hand, you render the entire operation to cartels who are enslaving people. Human trafficking is just cutting right against the, the whole idea of the image of God, the imago dei. So applying the principle to policies is really complicated. And so I think we, we need to exercise restraint and being simplistic sometimes on what's involved as we think about what goes on in our nation. And we need to really pray. We need to pray that maybe write your congressman. They'd step up for a change and put together some laws because they just haven't done it. Every administration has been the presidents who have been put out these things. It needs to be Congress. That's their job. They've got to write law. They need to... It, it's hard, and even, I mean, the laws aren't going to fix it, but, man, it, it, it's hard. It's not just enough to say, well, those people are breaking the laws. Well, you know, what if the laws are foolish, foolish or, or poorly constructed? I'm not saying that they are, but, you know, that needs to be considered. So it's just, it's, it's a hard, there's a little too much stridency on both sides, I think, as we look before what God really says in Scripture. We've got to willing to be willing to let him cut against us. Ultimately, though, applying the Imago Dei is Jesus became a fetus. Came into this world as, as a baby to live and then to die to rescue human beings who had rebelled against, who were enemies, made themselves enemies of God. That's us. Because we were made in his image. And so that's what we want to remember as we get ready to go to his table. And so the, the beauty is it's, it's not just in the beginning in our creation. It's also what's at the heart of our recreation of what God did for us in Jesus. So let's pray that he would connect these dots for us. Father, these can be hard issues and uncomfortable issues. We, we, we really want to know what you think, and we want to apply what you think, what you tell us is truth. Your truth is truth. We thank you that in, in your wisdom, you chose to create humans in your image. That we may, every single one of us, feel far from it, and there are many, many ways in which each one of us uh, don't display your image. And yet you tell us your image is on every one of us as we reflect on ourselves and on you. And Jesus, because he chose to restore your image, your picture, he has made us new creations, brought us into your new creation to make us to be, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of your son who was perfectly in your image. So Father, have your way with us. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And as we come to this table, we pray that as we eat and drink with faith, trusting in him, it would be a means of grace uh, to build us up 
and to give us courage to live and to see our life, our world, our neighbors, our enemies as the images of God. We ask this for your glory, even when it cuts against our desires. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.